Good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you've joined us uh, for worship today. Uh, I do want to uh, highlight a few things as we get started this morning because there are several amazing things that are going on around this church and sometimes uh, we might passively hear about them but we don't always do a good job of saying and acknowledging what's going on um, from the, the pulpit, from the stage. And so Montica did do the announcements this morning. For those that don't know, Montica uh, is just finishing her term as the chair of CE, and she has done an amazing job while taking care of a new business. And uh, she's also, um, the, the, she doesn't like me to say this, but she is the shiny tip of the youth ministry spear right now. And uh, is doing some really good things with a great team that is serving around and with her. Uh, but she's keeping our chaos organized. And that's been great. But she did point out, uh, yesterday we had a youth event for the spring. And we did have upwards of about 50 kids, or teenagers, not kids, excuse me, that were here at the church from 5.30 to 11 on a Saturday night. And they were here, most of them, because they wanted to be here. Uh, because they could drive and they could come and go. And, and it was a great time. You may have seen me out at the, at the Welcome Center showing some, some laser tag guns. And I did have some requests from a few adults about an adult laser tag session. And so we'll be working on that for those that want to come. Um, we will have a walker edition as well. So everybody's welcome. We don't keep anybody out. So I know you were wanting to come. And so I've got you, Carol. <clears throat> so we... We, we, we are really excited. I, I do seriously want to celebrate that, that on a Saturday night when kids could be anywhere else, we had kids continually all night pouring into the church. And uh, I was sitting in here uh, while we were getting ready to play one of the games, and I could hear students and laughter coming from every corner of the church. And I sent a text message out to our youth leaders, and I said, isn't it amazing to hear life in the church? And I hope that's what you hear. I hope what you see is not, you may have gone into some of your classrooms and seen some chairs out of place. We tried to put them back. But that is not an inconvenience. That is an evidence of life. That is an evidence of multi-generational ministry. And at the same time, I want to point out something because you don't get to see it again. Uh, as we were singing this morning, your all voices sounded amazing. But I remember JJ sitting on the front row kind of tapping on things. And, and this morning as we were playing, I couldn't help. I, I normally watch them sing and listen to the loud voices because it is encouraging. But I watched and one of the Lance children was sitting in the front playing the drums <laughs> as we were going. And I looked around me, and I don't know if you saw this this morning, but 50% of our band this morning was teenagers. And so again, this is the sermon before the sermon. And so again, as I'm playing this worship song, I stopped singing for a while, and I pulled back, and I was praying, and I was thanking God again. Thank you, God, for the signs of life in our church. And then you see the roses up here in the front. And, and we, again, get to celebrate new life to families here at the church. One Rose is in honor of Jackson Wayne, uh, who is the, the son of Carly and Wayne Bender. Uh, Tracy Westfall is the grandmother, and Jan and Dan Sen are the very proud great-grandparents this morning, as you'll notice from Dan's sweatshirt. You'll have to check that out on your way out this morning. He made sure to catch me. So congratulations to you all. We're so excited for you. And also we have another rose here in honor of Rook Andrew. 
as the son of Reed and Janelle Martin and the grandson of Joellen Martin. So congratulations to you, and we celebrate with you. But I want, us to, I want us to this morning, and every morning when we see the roses, when we see the kids, when we see the things, let us, not, let us not be frustrated by things that aren't our way, but let us celebrate the signs of life, that, that God is doing something here. And we're seeing multiple generations still coming into this church and finding a place to worship and a place to belong. And we praise God for that this morning, and let's thank him as we begin our service and turn our attention to the word today. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Oh Lord, you are so good to us. And so often we just brush by it, Lord, or even even we may miss it because things aren't the way that we think they should be or um, other things are going on in our minds, Lord. But this morning, Lord, may we be attentive to the signs of new life. May we be grateful for young worship leaders that are leading us in worship with boldness and courage. Thank you for the talents that you've given them and for their willingness to share them with us this early Sunday morning. Lord, we thank you for all of the young ones that continue to come and sit in the front rows every Sunday morning to sing with loud and glad voices, Lord. As the, the scripture tells us, that a, a child shall lead them, Lord. And we thank you for these children and the way that they encourage our hearts, Lord, and the way that they even lead me. We thank you for these new ones that have been born, and we pray that you'd be with their families as they adjust and adapt to new patterns and, and new paces of life. We thank you for their new lives, and we pray that you would watch over them, Lord, that, that you would protect them and that you would lift them up in your grace, Lord, that you would raise them up to know you and to serve you with their lives, that one day perhaps they will be standing on a stage like this singing giving announcements, or even preaching, God. But may you lift them up and lead them forward according to your plan and purpose. God, we thank you. We thank you that you walk with us, that you've gone before us, and that you live within us. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase... I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. Anyone heard that phrase before in their life? Anyone ever used that phrase before? I, I know that I have, but the question that we've got to ask is, is, do you know what it really means? I mean, obviously, we know the colloquial meaning, right? The dictionary definition that, that to come from the horse's mouth means that it is source material, right? That this is super, super reliable. You can trust it because I heard this from close to the source or straight from the source, right? That's, that's the intended meaning. But so many of our phrases that we say uh, have, have a development, a, an etymology, a background of which we're not aware. There, there's a meaning before the meaning, if you will. And I'm always curious by that. I, I, like, I like chasing those rabbit holes down to see what exactly am I saying and where did it come from. So this week I, I, I looked up what does the phrase Heard it straight from the horse's mouth mean. Where does it come from? According to Random House Historical Dictionary of Slang, which is an actual book, by the way, not one, but three volumes of American slang terminology. Two of the three are on their way to the church right now. 
But the expression comes from the early 1900s and the world of horse racing in Great Britain. And there are, are two probable and likely meanings to what, what the, the phrase was actually intended for and how it was originally used when it was first developed. Apparently, when at the racetrack, people are always looking for some good insider information about which horses to back. Which horses are, are most likely to win the race? Which horses are, are the healthiest and feeling the best and most likely to pull ahead and win the race on that day? They would look for tipsters that worked in the stables, believing that those that worked closest with the horses, rightly, would most likely be uh, the, the ones on the inn, right? The ones on the know that really understood what was going on with the horses and, and could give an educated um, explanation of what the day's events were going to hold. They, they, their information and their, their, their advice was believed to be so good that it couldn't have been better if it had come from the horse's mouth. These trainers working with the horses, that they knew the horse inside out and out, and they were speaking for the horse, that the only way you could get a better idea of how that horse was feeling or how it was possibly going to run that day is if it was Mr. Ed, his self, and he started speaking to you. For those of you that don't know who Mr. Ed is, you need to Google it. It's an amazing show from back in the day. I used to watch it on Nick and Knight and Black and White, but great show. Check it out. Talking Horse. A second related option to the first revolved around the buying and selling of horses. Revolved around the buying and selling of horses. You see, any noob could go and look at a horse and see an, uh, an obvious injury. That any, anyone could walk around a horse and see, hey, that horse may, maybe is limping a little bit and could check that out. But, but, but someone who really knew a horse wouldn't just check the legs of the horse, the body of the horse. You, you, know what, you know what the true shrewd horse trader was really concerned about? The teeth. The teeth. And so that, that, new, that horse trader would come and, and would look at the teeth of the animal. And, and it is believed that by looking at the teeth of the horse, that an experienced horse trader could tell you the approximate age of that horse. Have you ever heard the phrase, they're getting a little long in the tooth. Well, that phrase comes from that same idea that as you looked at, at, at teeth, you know, the, the, the gums begin to recede with age and with health problems. And so as, as something is longer in the tooth, it is believed that it is older. But also as you look at the teeth, you could see about the general hygiene of the animal, how the animal was cared for. And so if the teeth of the animal weren't good, and you looked and got this information from the mouth of the horse, you, you were determining from the horse's mouth whether or not it was a, a buyable or a purchasable animal. You got the information from the horse's mouth. It's also interesting, side note, where we get the phrase, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. You ever heard that phrase? Now, the meaning of that being, hey, listen, if it's free, just take what you got, Right? Like, honestly, if you're looking at the mouth of a horse, like, can you ride it right now? Yeah. Is it going to die 50 feet down the road? Maybe. But you got 50 feet out of the horse. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. It, it all comes from that one phrase. I heard it from the horse's mouth. It's a really cool phrase. I like it. 
communicates the need to understand the, the inside information and that the best information comes from the source itself. As we consider the truth of the gospel, while I love the entirety of the word of God and I believe that all of it is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the person of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work as it says in Timothy. While I believe that all of scripture is authoritative and important for life, when it comes to the truth of the gospel, is there any place better to go than the horse's mouth? To go to Jesus and the words of Christ himself. So this morning, as, as we begin this new series that we're calling The Journey to Jerusalem, as, as we start today and we move our way through to the cross and ultimately to the resurrection, and we consider the realities that Jesus was facing and the decisions that he made that drove him down the path to Calvary to give his life for us. We're going to consider this morning what started it all and what does Jesus himself say about himself and why does that make this all so important. We're going to jump through several texts in John, the Gospel of John. We're going to look at John 8 and 10 at various points and we're going to see the testimony that Jesus gives about himself. Because it is upon his testimony that our faith and ultimate practice is established. It is also upon his testimony that he was taken to the cross. So join me as we make this journey to Jerusalem, starting with the testimony of Jesus. Open with me, if you will, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 12. John 8, 12 through 20. Now I'm going to read verses 12 through 20 this morning. I'm going to reference a few other verses, but you may have noticed in your notes that I've begun putting in italics underneath the, every point the texts that I am referencing through the course of the message. That is for your benefit, that, that perhaps if you don't feel like I have referenced this, the text enough and you'd like to go and check the sources, I'm giving it to you. You can go to the horse's mouth yourself and check it out, and I encourage you to do that. But, but note that those passages that I'm going to reference are in your notes this morning. But we're going to look at John 8, 12 through 20. It says this, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness what will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. <laughs> Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards, and I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. 
he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now we see a pattern here. There is a pattern that, that is going to further develop and escalate as we look through John 8 and moving into John 10. And the pattern is this. We need to understand that when it says that Jesus talked to the people, when he spoke again to the people, that is not a generic, there was just this random crowd that established had established around him. As a matter of fact, if you look back, you see a random crowd in John chapter 7, and you see a crowd surrounding Jesus again in John chapter 11. But here in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10 specifically, the indication inherent in the text is that the people that Jesus is dealing with are Pharisees. These are the religious elite. Now you might ask yourself, well there were two parties, right? There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Where are the Sadducees in all of this? Well, if you notice, Jesus is never saying anything positive to the Sadducees. That's because the Sadducees had already decided that Jesus was guilty from the beginning. They had nothing to say to him, and they believed they had nothing to learn from him. They were the uber, hardline traditionalists, and Jesus was just a little bit too modern for them. The Pharisees, ironically, were the more centrist partner. They were the more open-minded ones biblically, which is crazy when we think about it. And the, but the reason that we see them constantly talking to Jesus is because they were intrigued. They were interested in his interpretation of the law. They, they were willing to consider the things that he was saying and to have the dialogue. And so who we have here is, is we have this beginning of this dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus. Now there have been other dialogues. You see it most prominently in, in John. And in John 3 we see Jesus talking with Nicodemus. But this is where the standoff in earnest begins between Jesus and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus begins speaking, and as soon as Jesus speaks, Jesus says something that is at least moderately incendiary. And what I mean by that is Jesus says something offensive. Jesus says something that he knows is riding the line and, and is probably going to get someone upset with him. And you see the Pharisees hear what he say, Jesus says, and, and, and you, you see them scoffing at Jesus and going, who do you think you are? Like, that is the model throughout this text. Jesus will make some grandiose claim. The Pharisees will say, who do you think you are? And Jesus will say, well, you don't know who I am. And by the way, you don't really know who God the Father is either. And here we see they don't seize him yet because it wasn't yet his time. Now, I want to be clear. You know what's inherent in that idea? That they wanted to seize him. The conflict was on. Now, what is this claim that Jesus has made at this point that is so offensive that the Pharisees want to arrest Jesus and take him to court? Because what we're going to see is over and over again is multiple claims. And Jesus made incredible claims concerning his identity. Jesus made incredible claims concerning his identity. So what's this first one that gets them stirred up here in this discussion? Well, well the, the, the claim Jesus makes is found in, in verse 12 of chapter 8. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now we've seen this phrase before. If you've read the Gospel of John, this is not the first time that, that you've seen this phrase. 
As a matter of fact, if you turn over just a couple of pages to John chapter 1, verses 4 through 12, you see that John, for John, this concept of Jesus as the light of the world is going to be the central theme of John's gospel. That this is who Jesus is. And if we look at this part of, of John's thesis statement in John 1, John says this, In him, Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's kind of interesting to me. I, I, I've not really thought about this in detail unless I was preaching on it. But if you look at John chapter 1, John does a great job in his thesis statement of setting up who he believes Jesus is and how the world is going to respond to it. Right? If you look at John chapter 1, you can see John says, hey, look, he, he's the, in him is life. He's the light of all mankind. But, and the darkness can't overcome it. But understand, there is going to be opposition that there are going to be those that are not going to accept this story as we go through it. John laid it out right at the beginning. But it's also interesting that, that this is the thing that starts the Pharisees fuming. Because this is not a particularly offensive statement, is it? I am the light of the world. Now perhaps that though is because for you and I, we've heard that as Christian people and, and growing up in a mostly Christian society we've heard that phrase over and over again so for us it's just assumed yeah Jesus is the light of life Jesus is the light of the world absolutely but for these for these Pharisees they're they're again just like our phrase at the beginning the, came from the horse's mouth there's a deeper meaning that there are cultural realities that 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 this phrase has come from Jesus' claim is likely a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles along with a variety of Old Testament scriptures that, that tell us that, that God himself was the light of the world. That, that God himself would serve as the light unto the path of the people of God. That God himself would be the light of life in his people. And here Jesus is claiming that he is that light, that he is that life. Now, I said that, it, as I noted, it's, it probably comes from the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, during the Feast of Tabernacles, four lamps would be lit in the court of the women in the temple. Four large lamps would be lit, and they would light up the entirety of the temple. And for the duration of the feast, while those, those lamps were lit, there would be a 24-hour nonstop party going on in the temple. Considering adding this to our calendar of events, so CE board, put this on the list. We're going to talk about this. Nothing like a rave to say, I love Jesus. But that's essentially what would happen, is that they would come together and they would dance and they would read scripture and they would sing and they would dance and they would read scripture and they would sing and they would celebrate. And what were they celebrating? Well, they were celebrating the light. Specifically, they were celebrating the light of the pillar of fire of God. That led the people of Israel through the desert at night. The pillar of fire that reminded the people of God uh, of the perpetual presence of God with and for them. I, I don't know about you, but that seems like something worthy of celebrating robustly, doesn't it? And, and that's what they would do. They would have this massive celebration. 
all centering around the fact that God Almighty was the light that led them in the darkness. And here is Jesus saying, hey, that light that we've just celebrated, I am that light. I am the light of the world. Jesus is, is in a roundabout way and not so veiled even, making a claim that he and God Almighty are one. Now this is going to be the consistent claim and what's going to happen as, as we continue to go through John 8 into John 10 is it's going to crescendo. That Jesus' claims are going to become a little less opaque and a lot clearer as Jesus reveals the truth of who he is. And as he does, people are going to become more and more upset. These people are picking up, these Pharisees are picking up what Jesus is laying down. They know exactly what he's saying. They don't outright reject his claims yet. But they want another source to confirm what he's saying. And Jesus, being Jesus, this is one of the things I love about Jesus, rather than saying, hey, talk to any one of my 12 disciples, Jesus says, I don't need another witness. Because it's me and the Father. Well, who is your father? That's right. You don't know my father. Because if you did, you would accept who I am. Have you ever noticed how combative Jesus really was? Just keep that in mind the next time I say something offensive to you and you're like, what would Jesus do? I mean, in the Bible, Jesus was pretty incendiary. He was pretty direct with his claims. And here Jesus is doing that. He's beginning this path. But who better to confirm what's coming from the horse's mouth? than the one who created it. That's what Jesus does. He says, hey, look, I, I cannot find a better testimony. I am my own testimony, and my testimony is good, but my testimony is not alone. It is me and God Almighty with me. It is my Father that confirms my testimony. First claim Jesus makes, I am the light of the world. The second claim, and, and I'm going to roll several things together, we find in, in verses 21 through 24. And Jesus says, I am from above. I am not from this world. I am he. Well, what is he saying? What is he saying by saying, I'm, I'm from above. I'm not from this world. I am he. It might go back to that song, you know, you, you came from heaven to earth to show us the way. We, we know, we know the rest of the story, right? That we know the, the signs. And, and, and really, if you're honest, if we're honest about it, who, these Pharisees should have known too. Like if anybody should have recognized and realized that the Christ had come, if anybody should have been able to look at the signs in the sky and see all of the things that were happening in their midst surrounding Jesus' birth, it should have been the Pharisees. They should have already known that Christ had come. They should have already known that he was here. They were in a messianic age where they were looking for it intently. They were constantly in the Old Testament scriptures and constantly looking through intertestamental literature trying to figure out what was going on. These, these people People knew everything there was to know about the scriptures. I mean, if you look at Jesus' arguments with him, most of his arguments center around application, not understanding. The, the misunderstanding that Jesus calls them on comes about as, in the way that they are living it out or failing to live it out. 
And here these religious elite, those who had the most information, should have been the first to recognize the truth of who Jesus was. And they don't have a clue. And Jesus is doubling down on his divine origins here in verses 24 through 21 through 24. He's noting that, that he came down from the Father. That he's not of this world. That, that his origins, while, while he was born here, his original origins were of old. They were not purely of human making. Jesus is claiming to be preexistent. Throughout the life of Christ, from his birth to his adolescence to his adult ministry, you, you see these religious leaders recognizing something special in Jesus. You see them, that there are, there's just something about him that they cannot deny. Whether, whether it, it is his, his birth and all of the details around that, or when he goes to the temple and we see him sitting with the teachers of the law, and he's asking them questions that no 12-year-old should know to ask, and, and they're, they're listening to him, and they are bewildered, they are astounded by him, and that Jesus grows in knowledge and wisdom and favor with all of mankind, and then he becomes an adult, and everywhere he goes, crowds are flocking. Why? Because there are these amazing signs that are validating the message and the messenger. See, these, these well-educated people anticipating the coming of the Messiah should have known. They don't know, but they should have known. And they fail to see that Jesus is the literal Son of God and the promised Messiah sent from heaven. In fairness, it is a big pill to swallow, isn't it? I mean, for those of us, again, growing up in, in Christian backgrounds, it's a little bit easier because so much of it is assumed. But when you really break it down and you start thinking about the impossibility of a virgin birth, you think about the impossibility of walking on water, right? We've all tried it before. You can run as fast as you want, but you're not taking more than two steps on that pool. The, the impossibility of... Uh, uh, or perceived impossibility of, of someone with, with a terminal disease, a lifelong disease, coming and being touched by someone and being healed. Or, or even better yet, someone with a, a lifelong disease touching the, the, the shoelace on a shoe or the hem of a garment and, and being healed. That, that is just so massive. It's a big pill to swallow. Even John the Baptist, as he awaited execution, sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Hey, will you go ask Jesus, my cousin, go ask Jesus, is he the one? Or is he waiting, are we, should we wait for another? Jesus' answer to John the Baptist is quite similar. I, I am he. I, I'm the one. I, I am the Messiah. This I am he is not just some ambiguous, you know, ethereal he that's unidentified Jesus is identifying himself as the ultimate he that he is the promised son of God he is the promised Messiah he is the one that has that they have waited for that, that he's it guys you don't recognize me you don't see me but here I am I, I'm the one you've waited for who are you is the question again who are you come on come on guys See who I am. All of the scriptures and all of the signs pointed to one and continue to point to one undeniable truth. 
that Jesus was and remains the one. That he is the promised Messiah for whom they'd long waited. The promised Messiah come to bring salvation to all who would believe. Jesus' second claim, I am from above. I'm not from this world. I am he. I am the Messiah. And again, if we look deeper into that, we see Jesus in verse 28 saying, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, now we're going to come back to what he's saying there, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, now you and I would think that, that Son of God would be the divine or, or messianic claim, right? The Son of God is better in our minds than being the Son of Man. But if we look at the Old Testament, it is actually the Son of Man that, claim, that, that lays claim to being the Messiah. Many people had been called the Son of God throughout history. Many people were known as the children of God, but there was only going to be one Son of Man. The Son of God and Son of Man. Jesus, again, is claiming to be the Messiah and to be of divine origins. But then Jesus, in John 8, 31 through 57, specifically in verse 58, brings the, the unforgivable testimony. We're actually going to look at that right now. So look in your Bible at John 8, and, and we're going to look starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, again the Pharisees, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Even as Jesus is arguing with them, they still don't get it, and they're trying to go as far away as they can, being insolent. Not only are you not a child of Abraham, not only are you not the Messiah, but, but you're a half-breed. You're dirty, you're unclean, and you are unredeemable. Jesus says, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say, whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Again, there's the question. Who are you? Jesus replied, if I glorified myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. <laughs> you are not 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus has just had this long, we just caught the back end of this long dialogue over the integrity of these people as the children of Abraham. Of, of, of being the pure ones of God that hold the truth, the gatekeepers of salvation, the gatekeepers of knowledge, that they are these great ones. And Jesus continues to call them into question, continues to call their identity as the children of Abraham into question. 
And they ask him finally, as they go through the whole dialogue, are you greater than Abraham? Do you think you are better than Abraham? Here you are questioning our, our identity as Abraham's children, and you're claiming to be the, this, this son of God. Do, do you really think that you are better than Abraham? And Jesus' answer, in short, is absolutely yes. And some. Now, if you go back through John, you'll see that Jesus makes several what we call I am statements. Ego I me. Jesus makes these statements, and, and every time, Jesus is once again creeping closer and closer and closer to this line. And he's moving towards this very moment. It's, it's literarily, it, it is a, a great device. That it's a great literary device that John is using to, to build tension in those that are paying attention. Every time, I, I imagine in my mind that Jesus says, I am this. Perhaps Jesus gets just a little bit louder and a little more emphatic. Because if you look, Jesus is over and over and over again claiming connection with divinity, creating relationship with the Father Almighty, creating sonship of divine God. And now Jesus just pulls off all the gloves and throws the, the killer punch. And he says, you want to know, am, am I greater than Abraham? Jesus starts with, in my English Bible, in my NIV here, it says, very truly, I tell you, perhaps if you have a King James, perhaps it says, verily, verily, I say unto you. If you have an ESV, it might say, truly, truly. If you actually look at the literal Greek words, the words are amen and amen. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is, is, is setting a sign. He's like, everybody, pay attention to me right now. Listen to what I'm about to say, because what I am about to say is absolutely, 100%, without question, true. I will die on this hill. This is true. All of these things that you keep saying about me are lies, but this is true. Before Abraham became, I am. Now, we might, we might say, if you look in the context of it grammatically, it would, would it not be more effective or grammatically correct to say, before Abraham came, I was. Yeah, well, I was, am, I, do, am I claiming that I was here before Abraham? Yeah, I, I, I saw Abraham. I know what went on with Abraham. Because before Abraham was born, I was. So but Jesus is not talking about temporality. Jesus isn't talking about a, a point in time in history or a place. Jesus is making a very clear, unambiguous claim. What Jesus is saying when he says, before Abraham became, I am, I existed. Jesus is connecting himself back to the claim of God as he talked to Moses from the burning bush. And Jesus is saying, I am. I am God. Not only am I connected to the Father, but, but I, and he tells it again at the end of chapter 10. I and the Father are one. Jesus isn't just claiming to be greater than Abraham. He's claiming to be God Almighty. Jesus made some incredible claims concerning his identity. But Jesus also made some bold accusations about his enemies at the same time. You know, it's one thing to, to be making these big claims that are offensive about yourself, but then to, to follow that up 
with an accusation that is going to be offensive against your enemies, well, that is incredibly bold. First, Jesus accuses the most learned scholars and well-read experts of the day of being ignorant and unobservant. Jesus in John 8, 19 and 21 says in different ways, you don't know me or the Father. You don't know me or the Father. It's a continuous refrain that he makes. It reminds me of, uh, of a story one time uh, of something that happened at the church pretty early on. Uh, right after I got here at the church, I remember standing in the office and, and periodically salesmen would come to the church wanting to, to sell us something. And they'd heard that there was a new pastor. They must have known blood was in the water because they came out of the woodwork. And it was like two or three salesmen a week coming in trying to get us to change copier things or change paper distributors. or They were just coming from everywhere. And I remember I was standing at the counter one day in the office in there. And next to me was Pastor Larry Tingle, who's our, our pastor of pastoral care here at the church. Now, if, if you look at us next to each other, for those of, us, those of you that have maybe not met Pastor Larry, Pastor Larry is considerably older than I am. He also dresses considerably nicer than I dress on a day-to-day -day basis. So Larry and I are standing next to each other, and, and in comes this southern Texan-type salesman, big, bold, brash, southern accent. And he comes in, he's like, well, Pastor... It is good to see you today. I'm glad I caught you before you stepped out. You must be heading to lunch. I remember it as clear as it was yesterday. And he begins into this long tirade about copy machines and, and how we could save a ton of money if we go with this new thing. And the Lord would be pleased if we were good stewards of our money. And he goes through this whole long sales spiel. And, and, and he finishes it. And he says, well, Dr. Myers, it's good to talk to you. And he reaches out his hand. And so I reach my hand around Larry and uh, out to the guy. In the entirety of the conversation, the guy did not one time look at me. The whole time, he's looking at Pastor Larry having this long conversation with whom he believes is the pastor of the church. So I reach out my hand, and, and I go to shake his hand, and he looks at me, and he looks at Larry, and he looks back at Larry, and he goes, he's kidding, right? <laughs> no, sir, that, that's Dr. Myers. And I was like, good to meet you, buddy. Thanks for stopping by. We did not go with their company, by the way. But it is an interesting illustration of how sometimes we make assumptions based upon appearances. And, and here these Pharisees, I feel like I'm in relatively good company because here these Pharisees are looking with Jesus with all of these amazing truths that he's teaching, with all of this infinite knowledge, with all of these amazing miracles, and they still can't see it. They're still looking for someone else because it surely can't be this guy. It cannot be you. Again, the Jewish people had been watching and waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. And here he is standing before them in the flesh, confirmed by amazing and mighty miracles, and still they can't see it or won't believe it. Second thing Jesus does is he accuses them of being rebellious sinners, citizens of the world standing accused. You know, today we talk about being worldly, and, and a lot of times a, a, a citizen of the world, it, it's something that carries a different meaning for us today. It, means, it actually means today that you're well-educated, that you understand a lot of things about how the world works, and, and you understand the, the, the way that people work, and, how, and there's a complementary side to it. Back here it's not. To, to, to be a citizen of the world meant that you were an outsider, 
You, you only had, you didn't want to be a citizen of the world. You wanted to be one of the people of God, and to be anything else was to be less than. And here Jesus says, listen, you are anything but the children of God. You're a citizen of this world. You are rebellious sinners. And interestingly enough, in the Pharisees' terminology, sinner and child of the world were interchangeable. They were synonyms. Because everybody else was a sinner. Only they were the pure children of God. Jesus points out that their issue is rejection of him. Jesus says in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. You see, what's interesting there for us is this, that the sin that Jesus was most concerned about was not lying, it wasn't cheating, it wasn't stealing. Jesus, the, the sin that Jesus was most concerned with was their denial of him. And ultimately, is that not the ultimate sin? That our denial of the truth of who Jesus is, our refusal to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, is that not, is that not the decision in the truth upon which our eternity hangs? I, I ask that in a form of a question, but I want to be clear that that was rhetorical. It is the decision upon which eternity hangs. What we do with Jesus, what we believe about who Jesus was and who Jesus is, is of eternal importance. It's of first importance. We don't earn our way into or out of heaven. We acknowledge and accept the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Or we ignore and reject it. Pharisees still, who are you? They still don't understand. It's willful indifference and rejection of Jesus. Then Jesus makes another claim. He tells them, fine. They say, Abraham is our father. I don't know who your father is, but Abraham is our father. And Jesus essentially says, listen, Abraham may be your forefather, but the devil your daddy. Abraham may be your forefather, but the devil is your daddy. What does he mean by that? Not only were these religious leaders ignorant of who Jesus were, uh, was, uh, they, they communicated troubling ignorance to who they were. If you look at the passage, you'll note that they say in, in verse 33, they say, we're Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves to anyone. Anybody else in the room that that throws up some red flags? We've never been slaves to anyone. I mean, there's like literally a whole book in the Bible that's about the fact that they were slaves trying to exit slavery, right? I mean, I could be wrong, but in my Bible, there's a book called Exit Us, right? Get us out of here. And then if we want to go a little bit further, we could look through all of the prophets. How many of the prophets revolve around them being exiled in Babylon, in Assyria, in Syria, under captivity to the Romans or the Greeks, like all these people have been his slaves. What are you talking about? We've never been slaves. Well, they're actually going a step further because they understand, surely, that they have been slaves physically before, but they're saying, in our hearts, we are free. In our hearts, we are free. Jesus confronts them with the truth of the lives they are living. Their true kinship 
And their true status in, in life is established not by their attitudes or their hearts, but their actions. They had seen the miracles, they knew the truth of Scripture, yet they still followed in the footsteps of a different father, the devil. He is a liar. He is a murderer. Are those not two dominant characteristics that we see in the lives and actions of the Pharisees? That they bear false witness concerning Jesus? And over and over and over again, they try to take his life and ultimately succeed? Liars and murderers, just like their father, the devil. Again, Jesus' enemies understand exactly what he's saying. They intended and attempted to kill him. In John 8, 13 through 19, it tells us that no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. In John 8, 58 through 59, Jesus makes the claim and it says, At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. In John 10, 31 through 39, it says again his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. They were offended and therefore went on the offensive and they wanted blood. You know, it reminds me of a truth in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. We've heard the phrase, sometimes the truth hurts. And I think that that is a, a fairly accurate statement. In Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, it says, For the word of God, the truth of God, is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It's not exactly a friendly picture. I mean, I think about even a knife with surgery, right? You, you have a surgery that happens, and it may bring about healing, but I don't know if you've ever had a surgery, but it doesn't feel good. No time have I had a, skin touch my, a knife touch my skin that I'm like, oh, man, that feels nice. Can I have another? We try to avoid that, right? Even though the outcome might be positive, the process is awful pain, often painful, The truth was meant to cut bonds. It was meant to cut sin out of our hearts. But when we tr fight against the truth, when we try to deny the truth, it cuts us to pieces. The truth can and does at times hurt. The truth will either cut us free from that which keeps us from God, our sin, or it will cut us to pieces. Either way, our hearts will be broken and our feelings will at times be hurt. The difference will be determined in how we respond. Whether we, resp we experience wholeness through the healing power of Christ or we languish in the hostility and rebellion of our hearts. See, Jesus confronted Jesus made bold accusations about his enemies. They fought against it, ultimately leading to their own hurt. And pride and power can blind us to the truth about ourselves and others. It is only through the light of the world that we can see the stains of the world upon and within us and that we can respond appropriately. 
And here's where I want to end things, though, because as we look through all of this text in John 8 and 10, you, you see Jesus consistently being driven down the road to Calvary. You can see Jesus even predicts it. If you look at John chapter 8, you can see Jesus making the prediction that he knows where this is going to lead. John 8, 28 through 29, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me, for I always do what pleases Him. Jesus is making a claim right here that He is eventually going to go to the cross. Jesus knows where this ends. That His obedience to the Father is going to result in a cruel and terrible death. But here's what I notice about Jesus as he continues to interact and continues to confront his enemies. That even as Jesus was being driven down the road to the cross, Jesus worked to point his enemies up the path to salvation. Even as Christ was being driven down the road to the cross, he worked to point his enemies up the path to salvation. The attempts to murder the Son of God would eventually come to fruition when the time was right. Jesus, knowing full well what was coming, still chose to walk the road. Christ willingly made the journey to Jerusalem, knowing that it would result in him giving his life in a terrible and torturous way, suffering a death he didn't deserve at the hands of those he came to save. And Christ could have declared judgment, but instead he chose to off- offer a path to salvation. In John 8.30, we see that some, some believed. And Jesus isn't just fighting with them so that he can tell them how dumb they are. Jesus isn't just trying to insult them. Jesus is trying to point them to redemption, to restoration, to what they've waited for, to what they want, to what they truly need. Sure, Jesus came hard and heavy with truth, knowing that it would hurt but also knowing that it was the only way that they would find what they most needed. I think that's the truth of what we see in this Easter season as we consider the path Christ walked for you and for me. That even as we reject him, even as we fail to see, even as we fail to understand that God Almighty still pursues us. That God Almighty still loves us. That even as we curse him and fail him, time without number, even as we live as children of our father, the devil, Father God continues to seek right relationship with us. To bring about light and life that we might follow him into eternity. As we consider Christ this Easter season, as we move towards Palm Sunday, towards Good Friday, and towards Resurrection Sunday, let us remember and reflect upon the the sacrifice, not of just of Christ's death, but of Christ's life. May we seek the truth from the proverbial horse's mouth, and not just the horse, the creator of the horse, Jesus Christ, Almighty God. May we be encouraged and challenged in our hearts, and may we adjust and adapt in keeping with the plan and path he lays before us. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you so much for the truth of your word. I thank you so much for your sacrifice. Lord, you gave up so much for us. 
And you continue to pursue us. You continue to call us to righteousness. You continue to offer us your great grace and salvation. Lord, remind us today of your love for us. Love sealed and shown in blood. Lord, may we repent of the ways that we've failed to follow. May we see you, the man of sorrows, and understand that it is through that sorrow that we have been provided salvation in Jesus' name.